0: Well, hello. So, are you happy? Are you flourishing in this time of pandemic? How would you know? Is it just how you feel? Is there something more to human happiness? Where does it come from? This is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. Happiness, flourishing, the subjective sense of well being. You know, it's pulled a lot of attention recently because of America's uh, great success in so many ways economically, but also rising levels of discontent. Why aren't people happy? Well, it gets studied. So Arthur C. Brooks, who is a professor of the practice of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and is a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School, is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks. And he's a man who spent a career studying what it means to be happy. And so I read his books, I follow his podcasts, and I think about what he has to say. There's lots of wisdom backed uh, behind in back of the research that he does. And overwhelmingly, the research about happiness points in some very encouraging directions he wrote a rather good article in the atlantic which i've linked to on my notes page on our parish website where he wrote about human happiness during the current plague like a true professor though he defines what he means by happiness because if happiness is just this interior sense of i am pleased can you really feel like that in any fully human sense if everybody around you is completely unhappy, there's something perhaps too hedonistic or narcissistic about that. And so he wants to define what he means and what these academics mean by happiness or flourishing, which are names that go back all the way to uh, Aristotle, uh, words that we get to describe this sense of human contentment, but In the academic world, they've decided on something they think is a little more broad-based. And so, wouldn't you know, they have their own word. And their phrase is, how is your subjective sense of well-being? How's your subjective well-being today? Use that next time you say good morning to your spouse. And so, in talking about how uh, they measure a subjective sense of well-being, there are three equations that are important. And I'm going to go through those now as we prepare to talk about the gospel. So, are you happy? Do you have this subjective sense of well-being? Equation number one. Subjective well-being equals genes, circumstances, and habits. We'll talk about circumstances and habits a little while later because I think mostly people get that. But is it surprising to you at all that happiness may be dependent uh, in some not insignificant part, on your genetic makeup. Here's what Dr. Brooks wrote. Subjective well-being is a term of art usually used by social scientists. Why not happiness? Well, many scientists consider happiness as a term to be too vague and too subjective and to contain too many competing ideas. In everyday language, happiness is used to denote everything from a passing good mood to a deeper sense of meaning in life. The term subjective well-being, on the other hand, refers to an answer to this kind of question. Taken all together, how would you say things are these days? Would you say that you're very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? That's the actual reading from a general social survey that a researcher used to study happiness. Well, we probably all could say happy, pretty happy, not too happy. but in how they look at that, is the question of of how does that square with habit, circumstances, and genetics, without getting too deep into the details. uh, Dr. Brooks and some of these other researchers concluded that your genetic makeup is not an insubstantial part of how it is that you describe your subjective sense of well-being. This should, however, make really good sense to you, although there's a part of it that's kind of problematic. Here's why it should make good sense. Even the ancients recognized that there were different personality types. You know, in the ancient world, they say there were four basic personality types the sanguine, the choleric, the melancholic, and the phlegmatic. But that's too philosophical for modern researchers. Instead, modern researchers would tell you the same thing your mom probably told you about you and your brothers and sisters. That kid can't be happy. That kid's happy no matter what happens. There is something about who we are as kids that carries forward. And it's something just about what social scientists call homeostasis, our kind of basic neutral set for how we feel about ourselves and happy habits and circumstances can alter that subjective sense of well-being one way or another so we kind of have a happiness experience that in a significant degree based on our predisposition we don't really have any control over it well the truth of the matter is we don't get to control our families we don't get control a lot of things about our life it's just something we all have to accept we get to choose what we believe and what we do but that starting point, our bodies are a given and we are not a blank slate. We are not a tabula rasa. So in short, we don't create ourselves. We all start where we start. but our habits and circumstances can make the experience of our interior sense of well-being a uh, better or worse. So here's equation number two. Habits equals happy habits. well-being habits equals faith plus family plus friends, plus meaningful work. Here's Dr. Brooks' crude summary of all this massive research on happiness, because there's a lot of people writing about it now. Here's what Dr. Brooks said. This is my summary of thousands of academic studies, and to be fair, many scholars would dispute it as too crude, but I'm convinced that it is accurate. Enduring happiness comes from human relationships, productive work, and the transcendental elements of life. So how happy are your relationships and family and friendships? Do you like your job? Do you think it all means something more than just what goes into your bank account? Is there a point to it all? He talks about Harvard psychologist, George Valant, who is one of the leaders on, get this, a 75 year long study of Harvard students that graduated between 1939 and 1945. They followed some of them into their 90s. Valiant reduced all the research on all these students, how they experienced and everything they had, family, work, uh, whatever their religious uh, beliefs were. And he says it can all be reduced to one simple formula. This is after 75 years. This is the formula, quote, Happiness is love, colon, full stop, period, end quote. So it's about love. It is about how you love yourself, how you love other people, and how you love that greater sense of what your life is about. Humans are made to believe in something or someone greater than themselves. Narcissism, hedonism are not the roads to human flourishing. Human beings want to belong, and so family and friends are the sine qua non of human flourishing. That is, that which without which makes something impossible. We are not autonomous creatures like philosopher Thomas Hobbes um, said, or the individualistic, self-actualizing supermen of the philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche. We flourish to the extent that we can cultivate our relationships with others. There's a third equation to human flourishing, to that subjective sense of well-being. Equation number three, satisfaction. What you have divided by what you want. Think this through again. Satisfaction in your life equals what you have divided by what you want. Simple formula. Uh, Research suggests that happiness or flourishing requires us to manage our wants and desires. Uh, Here's a good example that everybody can tie into. A student who goes home and studies, putting off his present happiness for a future return, a student who goes home and studies, makes possible a future personal success that will be lost to the kid who goes home and habitually only does what they wanna do when they wanna do it because they want to do it. And so the future for them gets very narrow Here Dr. Brooks goes to experts on happiness apart from the research. Here's what he wrote in that Atlantic article, which you can read by going to to my uh, Oral Valley Catholic notes on our website. Quote, many great spiritual leaders have made this point of course. In his book, The Art of Happiness, written with psychiatrist Howard Cutler, the Dalai Lama stated, Brooks is a great fan and friend of the Dalai Lama, but he says the Dalai Lama stated, We need to learn how to want what we have not to have what we want in order to get steady and stable happiness. St. Jose Maria Escriva, a Spanish Catholic saint, the founder of Opus Dei, made the very same point in a slightly different way. Quote, Don't forget it. He has most who needs least. Don't create needs for yourself. So, Great lesson. And all this sounds very familiar to the discipline of living the Catholic faith, if you think think about it. Don't obsess about what you don't have. Focus on the causes for happiness that you do possess. Our consumer-driven culture undermines our happiness by trying to convince us and the kids that we constantly need one more stupid thing just to be happy. And everybody knows that a raise at work has a limited shelf life. And that toy you got for Christmas is lost all interest within the the day of Christmas. You see, in the Catholic tradition, the human human flourishing described by Dr. Brooks and represented in the academic research leads on its best days to an imperfect happiness. That's really what's being described in Dr. Brooks's uh, article. Human productivity, family, friends, and wants all have an endpoint in our death. In our Catholic tradition, Happiness is not a feeling, but a flourishing life with joys, sorrows, challenges, successes, failures, and the presence of God in this world, and happiness with God forever in the world to come. You see, the complete, perfect experience of happiness is something we're being called to, and it's called the kingdom of heaven, and it's life in the divine trinity. Because human virtue alone, that is, our acquired virtues, you know, justice, temperance, Prudence uh, and uh, moderation. Uh, That because these acquired virtues, these are something every single person can have, but on their own, they will deliver an imperfect, time qualified experience of happiness. It's the theological virtues that Catholics enjoy faith, hope, and love that lead us beyond what this world has to offer, and as we live them, changes our understanding of the world that we live in. So with that in mind, of what human happiness is, those three equations about how we're, how we're built from by nature, what our habits and circumstances are, and how we manage our wants to something that life can deliver, this is the basis for the gospel today to which we now turn.
1: Holy Mary, mother, God's pure vessel,
0: pray. So the gospel today is from Matthew, and it's the speech where Jesus is preparing to send his 12 apostles out on mission. And this is the advice that he gives them. And there's really four parts of it. The first is this, Jesus gave his disciples authority. They weren't out to promote a book, it's not a book tour. They had authority from Jesus himself. And so in the gospel, the word for disciple means student or learner. The Lord entrusted his students, his disciples, with the authority to imitate him by preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He gave them authority over the dispensation of the sacraments. The disciples do not go out and proclaim the gospel on their own authority. They don't make it up as they go along. They didn't commission themselves. They didn't get a copy of the Bible and open up a storefront uh, church. Instead, they received the authority from Jesus and our connection with Christ. The church communion, the koinonia, our community, takes us somewhere beyond our human experience of the church militant that is, the church in this pandemic-filled world, to another world. The church connects us to the kingdom of heaven and the church in heaven. That is the place of the saints. The church does this because its authority is not purely human. We trust and hope in Christ's promise. The second thing that Jesus did. Jesus called his disciples to love him more than mother and father, sister and brother. Okay, wow. No math teacher can call you to love him in mathematics more than you love your family. Jesus is asking something only God can ask. It's another place in the scripture where Jesus claims the prerogatives of God. In Exodus 20, where the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is set out, remember that the first three commandments are about the duties we owe to God. Jesus isn't asking people to abandon social judgment, uh, social custom. He's not making families less important. But everything in this world is only of relative importance to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because everything in this world ends. Even if they build a beautiful big statue to you, at some point someone's going to tear it down and throw it away. And so where is your real hope and the hopes for everything you love lie? You already know this. It's in God. So Jesus has a third instruction to his disciples. Jesus instructs his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. All right, first century, the cross, it's not a piece of decoration. It's the electric chair. And what he is saying is, if you're going to follow me, this is going to get rough. And so when he says, you're not worthy of me unless you will take everything in your life, and recognize that this is the disposal of God. He is making a claim. He's making a demand that nobody else can make because the demands that Jesus makes to his disciples in this gospel is how they orient their entire life. You see, the idea of acquired virtue, all these habits and circumstances discussed by Dr. Brooks, they're beautiful. They're available to everybody. However, they can't deliver ultimately what our hearts are made for. Our hearts are made for union with God. Faith, hope, and love directs our desire for happiness beyond our immediate circumstances of our life, beyond a pandemic, either a happy or a disappointing marriage, or the struggle with kids or work or whatever else. It all takes its place in a much bigger story that is much larger and more meaningful than just what I'm born with, what my habits are, and what my circumstances are. That's why the gospel ought to appeal to the richest, most talented person in America and the poorest person living on the streets of Calcutta or in our own ghettos. You see, to take up the cross, to accept suffering, to see our solidarity with one another, this, my friends, equals cost of discipleship. The cross is the center of Christian life, in marriage, the vowed life, and in single life. This is true not because Christianity is a sadistic religion, but rather that Jesus' Jesus's cross transforms suffering into the great sign of love. Love is the only way to heaven, and any real claim to happiness requires sacrifices, whether you're going to be a priest a religious, a married person, or a single person committed to the gospel. you got to give something up and leave it behind. We can't be a disciple without sacrificing for love of God and one another. Why be a priest or religious if, you, if it's always used to be one more thing you do? Because at some point, there'll just be some other competing interest. You gotta love God first. Jesus' fourth rule. Jesus provides for those he sends. So Jesus said in the gospel, and whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, those are his disciples, to drink because the little one is a disciple, amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. It's not just the disciples who leave their families behind and make sacrifices for the gospel, like Peter and Paul and and all the, the apostles. Jesus also includes all of those men and women that received the apostles into their homes, that provided for them so that the gospel could be spread. You know, Everybody plays a role in the evangelization of the world. It's not possible by just passing the Bible forward. America is a proof of that. What we need is the gospel delivered with the authority of truth and the power to reconcile uh, the lost to Jesus. The disciples, these 12 men, would not have gotten anywhere without the support of believers like you and me. And so, let's pull this all together. And so happiness, subjective well-being, flourishing, Jesus' demands on his disciples. How's all that pulling together for you, you know, as you live through this pandemic? You know that the COVID-19 infections are spiking, as is the the, the death rate in increasingly amongst uh, younger people from their 20s to their 40s which is an interesting development but how is it that you make sense of it all and that is that whole role of faith because it's god that helps us to put this into some coherent pattern of meaning directed towards our salvation and the salvation of the world that's why a fundamental importance is the love of god a foundation the basis for how it is we understand our happiness. And that's what Jesus meant, unless you love me more than you love mom and dad and your brothers and sisters, because God can be the only absolute. It's the only belief that puts the lo- every other love that you have in your life in a proper perspective. You see, we love others well relative to the love of God and for their own sake. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2232, it says... That family ties are important. We must honor our father and mother and love our families. Remember the fourth commandment of the Decalogue. Um, But they're not the absolute. Now, here's the second thing. To love God in part is to support the work of the gospel. Everyone has family obligations, but if we don't take care of our larger community, and that is the church also, it is our families and friendships that will ultimately suffer living in a degraded, Christless world. Does anyone really want to go back to what the Roman Empire was? Does anyone want to surrender to secular humanism and the attitudes they have? This, that's going to go to a very dark place. Priests and religious who live the consecrated life take a vow to radically give up family and friends in order to follow Jesus. Priests and sisters, if they're truly living their vocations, go where they're sent by their bishop or superior. You know, that's always where the rubber hits the road, I've noticed. Also in marriage, it's when it gets bumpy, when the circumstances get harder than we thought. Jesus' call to discipleship requires us to reorganize our lives and our time and our talents and our wealth around that which is of ultimate importance and it does not end in death. I love Dr. Brooks' article. That's why I wanted to tell you about it. It's that, hey, you're kind of born with what you got. You really can make some choices about the habits you form. You can make some choices about what you believe. No one makes you uh, be a Catholic. The circumstances that you have, boy, they can either be propitious to happiness or not. But finally, you gotta learn to uh, manage your wants. I sat next to this Sunni Muslim once at a baking class I took. And he had, he had fled the Iranian Revolution and he said, you know, he goes, when life frustrates your expectations, change your expectations. I thought that was pretty wise. Because God reaches out, even to social scientists and to all other these religions, the, the Buddhists, the, uh, the Muslims, uh, the, the Hinduism, and these things are obvious to so many but it's faith hope and love that directs them to their true source you know that part about managing our wants in order to be happy we all got to start with what god himself has given us in our personal strengths and weaknesses we ought to use our talents to support family and friends because they're so important to our our sense of happiness can you actually be happy if all the people you love are miserable that joy perfect at best and, and so much at uh, subject to the storms of life is a participation in the common good of love shared amongst all our family and friends and hopefully with the larger community of the church. There's so many things we don't aren't free to do, but we are free to choose how we love and organize our lives, whatever it is our lives are during this time of pandemic. See, that's the key to living our faith. The theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Faith is a free choice. Hope is the gift now of what faith has its anchor in. God doesn't make us believe, but in today's gospel, He shows us the implications of belief and how to live it fully. Uh, and it includes the cross and the ministry of the church. And all of that, our flourishing, our subjective sense of well being, our happiness requires us to manage our wants so we can make trusting choices about what uh, and who we support with our time, talent, and treasures, and how it is we treat the people in our lives. Because our fundamental need that shapes all other needs is our need for God. This has been Oro Valley Catholic. This will be Father John Arnold. Hope to see you again next
1: week. i <laughs>